Yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You've just been telling me about your photo shoot. Yeah, we were in the record shop. Did you chat to the guy who owned it? What was he saying? I, yeah, I didn't have a chance. No. Was, uh, Proper record shop owner. Even when someone's having a photo shoot, he's ignoring the customer. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's good. So let's see how this goes. Ready? Here we go. I'm Griffiths. You're listening to Q presents the making of. Hello, listener, and welcome to the latest instalment of Q Presents The Making Of, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of the great music makers of our time. My name is Niall Doherty. I'm the deputy editor of Q, and our guest this week is Griff Rees. Griff is a prolific songwriter, musician, filmmaker, and author. As both the frontman of Super Fairy Animals and an artist in his own right, he's established himself as one of the UK's most creatively daring musical mavericks. His new album, Pang, is his seventh solo record. It's a collaboration with South African producer and musician Musi, and Griff has described it as a kind of remix album where adventure is favoured over predictability. He joins us today in our Camden studio. Hello, Griff. How are you? Good, thank you. That description that you wrote for Pang, where adventure is favoured over predictability, do you think that's a good way of describing the way you've approached making music your whole career? I, I sort of react against what I've just done usually and um, I love songwriting and sometimes I record in a really simple way and um, the way I write isn't particularly groundbreaking so I have to find different ways of recording or writing um, just to make just to keep it interesting really for myself but I don't think it's particularly out there or anything here. Yeah. Are you always writing in the same way then? Do they um, all come from the same sort of process? Sometimes the best ones come when you don't try and write anything and they just sort of come along. I- ideas come fully formed with lyrics and an idea of how to record it and um, they're the best usually. Otherwise... Yeah, I just try and piece songs together. But it's pretty varied, you know, I don't have a... But you can only get away from yourself so much, you know. I broke the um, my number one rule of asking you about the record before we'd pressed record on this podcast, which I never usually bring into any chat. Oh, yeah, the small yeah. talk before, I've sort of wasted some valuable small talk, but you mentioned that this record sort of came out of the blue. Yeah, I did a bunch of Welsh language songs written mostly written on my acoustic guitar and then I got a call out of the blue from Africa Express um, and I've done bits and bobs with them like every five years or something they'll get a random email or something yeah. and, um, and for people who don't know that Africa Express is the sort of the collective that brings together African musicians and western musicians that'd be an oversimplifying way of putting it yeah, musicians from everywhere, really, but it's been an education for me. Um, I went with them to Lagos in 2008, uh, where they did a gig at Abfemi Kutsi's Revived Shrine, and I've done a few few gigs with them, and it's introduced me to a lot of African music that I wouldn't have maybe come across otherwise. I went with them to Johannesburg... Um, to write and record an album in a week, um, a year last January, I think. 
Um, and that was out of the blue. And I worked on a track with a producer called Muzi when I was there called Vessels um, that also featured BCUC. They were an amazing live band. They were they were rapping on the track and there was a guitarist, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, a, a veteran South African guitarist called Pukamisi, Um that the song was built around one of his riffs that Moosey had sampled. So I combined it with his beats. I, I loved the track and uh, I had a great time recording it. Um, I, th I think it's healthy when you're in the studio and you're laughing all the time, you know. Everyone's laughing and yeah. just enjoying the moment. And um, when I got home, I got asked to record some music for a, for like a parade in Cardiff that was... Um, that involved dancers from the Butown Carnival and um, it was for a festival and they were projecting images coming out of the sea and um, I had to make music to to back it up but it needed to be really rhythmic and I thought I'd send it to Moosey to remix and uh, the track came back it's called Bye 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 which means uh, bay, 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 yeah. about the the bay, and uh, what I loved about it was, Musi kept the core of the song was just uh, me and my guitar, but it still sounds uh, futuristic, but it's not far fetched from what I do, you know. Um, so then I thought I could record all these Welsh language tracks I'd written on my guitar and make a really futuristic record after all instead of making a an acoustic rock trad album um, How did you feel when you heard that track being sort of turned inside out? It was really exciting and um, I'd invited a few musicians in Cardiff to play on it there's a, a musician uh, called Nefamadi, who lives in Cardiff, and he plays a West African instrument called the balaphone, which is like a, a xylophone that distorts. I recall this in brass, um, but he really put a, a rock kit into it, you know. It was, um, all my kids were dancing on the house and listening to it, and it was a good sign. What have you got from, um, in terms of what have you learned out of working with the Africa Express stuff? Because it brought out stuff in you that wasn't there before. Um, it's it's hard to define. Usually, figure that out a few years later. Um, when I've been involved in those projects, I've just been in the moment, really. And um, and obviously, I, I would have never made this record otherwise. So I suppose I was just open to it. But yeah, the, the, this record happened really, really quickly. And I mean, two years ago, it would have been unimaginable to me that I would have made this record so that's a nice feeling Is it ironic to you that um, you and Musi's relationship came from you had such a great time in the studio with him and then you've made a record where both of you are on different sides of the world Well he came to Cardiff uh, to mix it so um, I recorded um, the basic tracks with Frank Chris Jenkins um, I've been working with for years um, he plays percussion and a lot of sub-furry animals records on 
things like Northern Lights and um, and he's recorded a lot of bands in Cardiff. Um, I think he recorded the first two Kate LeBon albums. Do you know that we had Kate LeBon in last week? She was in last week. Oh, yeah. cool, and great. She, she said many nice things about you. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? She's <laughs> not going to return um, the favour. Oh, yeah, no, I'll, yeah, no, yeah, she, she's a hero. Um, Chris Jenkins is a, also a, a really creative, fun producer. As I, I just went, I went around this house, drank loads of strong coffee. When my kids were in school, recorded between sort of ten and half two <laughs> every day for a. I probably did a week last year and a week early this year, and then Musi came over to play uh, a gig, and um, he came down to Cardiff, and we um, we just took the album apart and rebuilt it. Um, he sampled it, sampled everything. It was like making a, a hip-hop record in a way, but just sampling everything I'd recorded and maybe keeping the vocal intact. Had you made a record like that before? No, it was really great in that sense. He was working radically, you know, radically different to um, how I've ever worked, really, um, and really fast. And I love working fast. Um, Chris Jenkins works really fast. And Muzi was, he'd just work really intensely for two hours or something. And usually there was a brand new track after, after a couple of hours. He sort of <laughs> completely deconstructed it and then got it down to its core elements and rebuilt something. And if, if it didn't work, he just left it and started again. The next day, isn't it? You can hear that sort of sense of forward motion in the record, can't you? Yeah, and it's not a perfectionist record. We didn't sort of work on it until it sounded perfect. It was, it's just a product of uh, the two of us in the studio for, for a few days trying to make a unique album, but we didn't try and um, smooth it out or overcook it in a way. It's just a document of the days we had rather than trying setting out with an idea and trying to achieve it we you know we had no idea what every day was gonna bring yeah <laughs> but going back to your like when you were younger in your first few bands like for coffee pop when you were like um starting out as a musician were you always good at collaborating and al- someone who always enjoyed that spirit of collaboration uh my first band was writing songs uh, with my best mate in school, Rotary Poo, you know, we were writing songs together and and figuring out how to write songs together. And maybe the records that were coming out at the time, there's records like Psycho Candy by Jesus Mary Chain and a lot of um, records like that that were really simple and sort of demystified the art of songwriting, in a way. We felt we could pick up, you know, a guitar and figure it out. But we were into making a racket as well, and just, um, we'd invite random people on stage and people with drills and <laughs> saxophones and we'd 
play one song for 20 minutes and then leave as I mean, uh, it, it was really varied and just got thrown out, thrown out of a lot of places and banned from schools and things. Hello, my name is Griff Rees and are you listening to <laughs> Q Presents The Making Of? What were you like in school? Um, well, I liked school because I liked the other kids. So, was, um, but I, you know, I didn't particularly care for authority figures. So it was, so so it, was, it wasn't easy in, in that sense. So I left when I was sixteen. Um, but I didn't sort of dislike going to school. I wasn't interested in a way, but. I, just sort of started writing songs when I was furiously then, when I was about 16. What was the first one you wrote that you were proud of? Oh, I started writing songs when I was about five, um, recording onto my brother's tape recorder. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I was proud of anything, but um, when when I started for Coffee Power, um, I was about 16, I'd played drums in some other bands so I'd been gigging and playing light rehearsing three nights a week and gigging playing drums every weekend since I was about 13 and then uh, with a band called Machlid and then um, I think uh, me and Rodri Poo we tried to go and see the Smiths in, I think they're the gig in Llanditna or Hill. I can't remember one of the big theatres in, in North Wales. And we arrived and the the gig was cancelled. Uh, I think because Morrissey had been hit with a 50 pence piece, well, a sharpened 50 pence piece the night before in Preston. So he pulled a load of gigs. And um, we were really angry, so we went home and started recording an album onto cassettes. Um, and we ended up making about 50 copies of it and selling them for a pound or 50p or something, round perps. And we sold one to a guy called Gorwell Owen, who's, uh, who produced um, amazing experimental music in Anglesey. He, um, he had a band called Plants Bachovnis and he was releasing uh, albums by That's Blucky, really great adventurous um, industrial pop music we told everyone up front you know that it's, it's, cra- it's really crap I mean it's like and people Did, thought we were before, joking before they'd handed their money over or <laughs> yeah, yeah, as yeah. they were as, like a disclaimer you know it's, it's <laughs> awful I mean it's, you, you're going to regret buying this like and, sort of that was your parental advisory sticker <laughs> yeah and because um, it was so badly recorded and the lyrics were offensive and, and people thought we were just been modest or whatever but you know it's it really it was really bad so just so that people can complain afterwards um but um Godwell Owen saw something different in it and he liked the some of the more experimental things we'd done and we were sampling other people's records with with the cassette recorder and the pause function um and uh, he invited us to a studio um, and we recorded, I think he had an eight-track studio or something, 
and we recorded three songs with him and released a, a cassette and I think and they sounded like songs you know vaguely and uh, put one, put a drum machine on it and it, it, it sounded really it was really well recorded and uh, that was the first thing I was proud of I suppose but then I recorded everything then with Gorwell um for for years and years, you know, um, so it became a good friend and as a, a mentor in a, in a way. What was the point at which you thought maybe I could do this as a career or this could be a long thing? Well, always in a way, I just took it for granted. There was an option, and because because I, I didn't mind not being successful in other fields or or waiting around for it. Um, David Ian. Uh, joined uh, for Coffee Pope on drums and um, I think I think uh, himself and me we, we, that's all we wanted to do really so we, we were willing to hang around for years and we were students for a bit and uh, we were unemployed and for long periods of time together but we, we were willing to hang around and work on it and not be put off by we were, we weren't worried that we were not making a living from it either. If you know what I mean? It was, yeah. It was, and, and by the time we started to for animals and got signed, we thought it was hilarious. Do you know what I mean? It was like because we'd been playing together for a decade, playing all all kinds of venues, and that anyone wanted to sign us seemed like a joke. But yeah. Then, you know. And not just getting signed, it felt like within a year or so you had. Well, by the time the debut came out, you had huge success. What did that feel like? Well, it was a bit of a silly season in that a lot of bands were being signed and a lot of bands were becoming really successful. So, I don't know, we we were really happy that we we were allowed to make records. Um, Faculty Power put out, you know, the... We had experimental gazette and then three albums with yeah. Garwell Owen. And then when Subfit Animals got signed, um, Garwell left his teaching job and uh, produced an album for us. And we were just focused on on the recording, really, and the music. And uh, we just wanted to work on that. We we thought Physiologic was not, didn't quite cover what we were capable of as a band and so we went back to the studio as soon as possible we didn't know how to use a, a large studio we um, requested to go to Rockfield because we visited the Buratlis there and they had jacuzzis and uh, so we only so we went there because we thought we could have jacuzzis and and things and but we had no idea how to work the forty eight channel desk. Um Did you get to so, have the jacuzzis though? Yeah, I think they're like the Boo Radleys didn't it was, take Well it was like them. a bath with a machine in it that with a jet in it or something. I, I don't know, it seemed and and unreal at the time. And then um and there was a chef there and things, you know, it was uh, when there was still money in records. So there was a chef cooking for us. We couldn't move. We had so much food. 
and uh, we were used to recording on pot noodles. So it's quite a slow record for a, a bunch of young people. So for the for the follow-up, we went back to Godwell's house and um, made something more adventurous and immediate. You're listening to Q Presents, The Making Of. In terms of experiencing mainstream success, was it hard for you? Because Super Furries always, always seemed to look like they were doing what they wanted to do. Was that... Like sticking to those principles, especially once you've experienced success, was it ever hard, or did you really have to make sure that there was no outside interference? We were really lucky to be on Creation Records, and they can they had an, a complete understanding of where we were coming from. I think in in that sense, um, we were turning down loads of adverts, um, Levi's adverts, and. Um, car adverts all, all kinds of things we were turning everything down um, and refusing to format records we made kind of two versions of a single with remixes stuff to get a higher chat position yeah. we, maxi disc yeah so we, we were turning down all those kind of things um, but on, in every other sense we, we had no problem with being a, a popular band or you know, making radio edits. Uh, we didn't find some aspects to be compromising at all, because um, we we sort of, we loved pop music as well. Yeah, but but it was really weird. Do you know what I mean? Apart from the jacuzzi, what are your favourite memories of that? His first few records. Um. Well, we just presumed we'd get dropped any minute, so um, we just tried to take full advantage of it. So, um, going to Colombia during the Civil War and things to record a video and, you know, really intense adventures. (laughs) Did you expect someone to say no when you were putting in requests like that? Well, it wasn't a conventional record label, so um, they were in in on it in a way, <laughs> and and they they weirdly had uh, were very successful at the time with Oasis and um, who weren't conventional either. I mean, they they never formatted the records, or they 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 were they didn't go on about it, but they, you know they. They weren't doing any adverts, so in, in, in a way, we were just following their example. Are you passing the buck there? No, no, just no total respect. Do you know what I mean? They, we wouldn't have been able to make all those records without them, you know. It's it amazing for us. If there was one thing you could go back and change at any point in your career, what would it be? Oh, there's no point thinking like that I don't think Um, yeah I don't don't really think in in those terms When did you um, start to think that you wanted to do a solo career as well? I I was just recording things with uh, Garwell Owen um, demos really Um, we were so prolific as a band and I was making quite raw recordings Um, my first album Rattle Ganetlaith I made a bunch of demos and it sounded to me like a record. 
those really raw. It didn't really sound like super furry stuff. So I just thought it'd be a good idea to put it out. Um, I, I sat on it for a while because the band was busy releasing stuff as well. So I didn't tour my solo stuff intensely on the, the first couple of records. Um, but by then I was, you know, 35 or something and I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it when when I was younger, really. So, so it was just, and I, I, I wasn't a particularly good musician. So it, it, it took years of touring with Super Furries and things before I could do anything solo. Was it strange after when Super Furries went on an extended break? Is it hard trying to adjust to all of a sudden you're the main person, everything's under your name, as opposed to being in a band? Well, by that point, I was pushing 40, didn't I mean? So I was, and I'd been playing in, in bands for 27 years or something. So it didn't, it didn't feel... I didn't feel I was so acclimatised to playing and writing. It, it came very easily, you know. It, it didn't feel like a, a, a huge leap or anything, you know. Have you ever fallen out of love with music? No. No. I, I mean, I, it's, it's about the songs for me, really. Um, and um, I'm still trying to figure out how to write them. Um, I do. I find unique ways of writing that doesn't sound like other people because I'm I'm such a I'm, I'm very influenced by other writers and musicians, and um, I'm I'm trying to find new new ways of writing uh, slowly. You know, who are your favourite songwriters? Uh, when it was uh, gradually in, in during my teens. I, I was listening more and more to Lou Reed. Um, I started getting into the Velvet Underground when I was about 13. And then, but you know, I was into the, I was more into the pop music of the time and then, and big bands and stuff. And then I started, they got on my radar when I was about 13. And then I gradually got more and more knowledgeable about music. Um, there was a good record shop in. Banger called Carp Records with it. Um, so there's quite a lot of people with good record collections around um, that could introduce me to stuff. And in, in terms of listening out to how people wrote songs and things, I was, when I was about 16, 17, I was just buying a load of lurid solo records and really getting into the lyrics and the the music, although nothing I did sounded like it, I don't think. Uh, but when writers are really good, it's, it's not definable how how they write. You know, the, I mean, I was writing in, in the Welsh language anyway. It would be hard for me to master the English language like someone like Lou Reed. Yeah. But that was my biggest influence as a songwriter when I was a, a teenager. And, the, and I think that they're the, the years that stick with you always in a way, even after you've discovered free jazz, you're still kind of tied to your teenage tastes. What um, what comes easiest to you? Is it the lyrics or is it the melodies? Yeah, the music and the the melodies and seem to come easier. Um, but the, the best ones, the, the lyrics come at the same time. 
and then um, but I'm happy to work on the lyrics that I find it really fun um, rewriting songs and trying to um, narrow a song down lyrically it's like doing a crossword or something no, you just work away on it I just really enjoy it <laughs> which of your is there one song that means the most to you well I find it hard to be objective and I think unless you're critical of, of yourself it's all over in a way um, so I, I don't feel I've m m you know made a kind of song I'm, I'm completely happy with or anything but then sometimes I'll, I'll listen to an, an old record or something I haven't listened to for a long time and maybe I'll enjoy a couple of songs, you know. But, um, but, but yeah, I, I, I think I'd give up if it, was, if it was over the moon with everything I've ever done. Come <laughs> <laughs> And then coming back to Pang, I was reading the bit of text you wrote to accompany the the album when I got sent it, and it mentioned that you uh, a visit to the Prince's studio complex and home, Paisley Park, became quite influential. Yeah, um, I was touring with a band that played on Beeplesburg, um in the US. Um, we had no crew or anything. We were just um, just four of us in a in a van. And uh, Cliff Skirlock, the drummer, he's uh, high resolution, obsessive in terms of music. Um, he's like Neil Young, you know, in that he's a missionary for high resolution in right. in pop. And uh, so he made he made a playlist that lasted three weeks. Um, on a higher resolution digital player I think it had every Prince record for example and we'd booked a tour a tourist tour of Paisley Park and uh, the drive to Minneapolis from the previous cities was quite a long one a few days so we were just listening to the, the whole Prince back catalogue for days building up to visit Paisley Park so it became bigger than it should have, you know it was the the tension was massive and when we finally arrived it was like you know a pilgrimage really um, and it's like it's a bit like a, a B&Q out of town um, by a busy motorway and there's a big car park and then this square building but shinier. Um, and then you go in, and almost instantly, they introduce you to Prince's Ashes in a Perspex box. Um, there's a miniature Paisley Park complex in the box with Prince's Ashes in the miniature Paisley wow. Park. And then there's a cage of live doves next to it. 
um, and they just leave you alone with Princess Ashes for a few minutes to take it all in. Um, Sounds very Prince. So after driving for days, you know that we were in. We had this intense experience, and uh, in any case, I'm just going on now. But um, in terms of the the album Pang, I was listening to a lot of digital, shiny pop music. Um, and um, I recorded um, most of the album the week I came back from that tour and um, pop was in the forefront of my mind you know, sonically I wasn't going for a rootsy feel or yeah. anything um, We're almost done but first, do you remember Smash Hits magazine? Yeah. They used to have a biscuit tin filled with questions. Okay. This is our Jiffy Envelope equivalent. <laughs> Budgets were different back in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd like you to pick a few questions, one at a time, a question out of here. Okay. I'll give it a shake. Oh, amazing. It's real, it's real. Wow. Are you good at DIY? I'm imperfect at DIY, but I find that I sometimes have to do it. Like last night, I had uh, some family members that gone to Ikea without my knowledge <laughs> and came back with a lot of stuff and uh, I had to build it. There's a good book by Ian Svernonius called Censorship Now. Right. And it's got it's a collection of his essays and he's got an anti-Ikea essay in it, a rant. It's really good. Um, he's got some theories about IKEA. Were you thinking about that as you were trying to work out how to put? Yeah, but they, you know, do your shelves stay up? Well, they'd be up for a while, you know, and then I wouldn't put anything too heavy on them. <laughs> okay, here we go. Next question. Are you scared of going bald? Um. At the moment, it's not looking very likely. So I'm not, and when I do, um, I'll embrace it. What about when um, when you were younger and super furries just got really huge? Was that was that weighing on you or any band members' minds? You know, just it seems to be the especially as a frontman. No, because I, I I stood to the side anyway. So it didn't feel like a rock god or anything. Right. Was happy to uh, get to sing and stuff, but um, it wasn't hair dependent. It, it wasn't. We'd never put our photos on the covers and stuff. <laughs> okay. What's your favourite restaurant? Um. I don't know, but there's, um, in terms of music and restaurants, the most interesting one I've been to was, um, there's an Italian singer called Mina. Um, she got the decades worth of great music, and there's a restaurant in Milan. We did a neon neon record about 
um, called Praxis Mix Perfect. And uh, we found ourselves in Milan and um, we were taken to this... Well, it was about a Milanese guy called John Giacomo Feltrinelli. And... Um, his son took us to this restaurant dedicated to Mina and there's just uh, hundreds of paintings and photos of her on all the walls and um, I, I like her music anyway so it was like a, a musical shrine I, I can't remember what the food's like but <laughs> you know I think, I think it's my favourite restaurant but that that's the amazing thing about music and records is you never know where, where you're going to end up or where the records are going to end up That that's the most insane element of it um, writing a song about someone and then you end up you know meeting the families yeah. and they take you to a mad place and th- it's almost like that warrants a sequel to the song yeah Okay, last last biscuit tin question. Whoa. And I don't even know the name of the restaurant, so I can't tip. You know, give you a tip of how to find anything. How do you relax? Ah, oh, listening to music. <laughs> Put a record on. Maybe a really repetitive electronic record. Have you got any other hobbies? I think music's my favourite hobby. I think playing records and listening to records is my favourite hobby, I think. Um, yeah, I don't do, like, carving or something. Or, I don't know what people do as hobbies. Or, you haven't started rollerblading or anything rollerblading. like that. Rollerblading. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be terrible, yeah. Now, I've got friends who are rollerblading, they're really good, and I'm definitely not cut out for it. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us thank you very much um, and thank you to the, you the listener um, for listening and to producer Sue uh, please remember to uh, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts Spotify Google Play Planet Radio or wherever you get your podcast fix and please do tune in next week when we'll have another guest on Q Presents The Making Of uh, this has been Q Presents The Making Of with Griff Rees this is Griff Rees on Q Presents The Making Of